0: All right, good morning. Um, Glad you all are back. We're going to get started. This morning, the recordings should be starting to be posted soon. Some folks have asked about that. We'll get that squared away. Um, Today, we're going to be heavy in the Psalter, actually looking at the Psalms. Um, Specifically, we'll walk through the five books, uh, which should be I know you'll last, should be no problem to finish today. Um, As an overview, we'll just be going, but we'll just be reading a lot of Psalms, just so you know. Not all 150, um, but we will read at least one Psalm from every book, and in some cases, more than one Psalm from every book, and look at it just to help you understand the whole of the Psalter. So that's what we'll be doing today. Um, I'll set the table again, as I always do, keep resetting the table. So you keep understanding that we're we're driving one story through um, and you ha- have an understanding of how that syncs with the story so let me let me pray father we're thankful for this morning we're thankful for the chance to spend time in your word together to look at this book of songs that you gave to your church we pray as we consider your word as we study it together As we think about what you've revealed, that we would be thankful that we were created by you and redeemed by you, and that you have spoken in your word for your church in every age. We pray that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when we talk about uh, there's chairs up here, guys, and there's one there, and there's three up here. Uh, When we talk about um, the Psalter, I was telling you guys as a kind of theme, um, it's composed with five books, each each with a ending with a benediction. But there's some kind of overall theme going through, and that overall theme going through the Psalter really ties to the overall theme going through Scripture. if you will, I know it's, you know, people say, well, you're a, you're a covenant theologian, right? Um, that's, I'm known as being a covenant theologian. Uh, that's true. Uh, to some degree, though, I want to say among the Reformed, it's more appropriate to say we're kingdom theologians. In other words, God has established a kingdom, and we, if you will, um, rebelled against our king in our kingdom. Um, it was this glorious, blessed kingdom. We rebelled against him, and he is... Um, redeeming us to his, um, if you will, new creational kingdom, right? That's the end of the story. But he's doing that through covenant, and so we call that um, covenant theology. How is he bringing about the kingdom? He's bringing about through covenant. Uh, But as we—we're going to need some more chairs, I think—but as we um, work through that theme um, of the king, the king who is our creator, and his kingdom— Uh, We see that playing out in the story. So think about the king and his kingdom uh, from the beginning through the end. Remember, with Abraham, the promises were land, seed, and blessing. If you think about land, that maps onto the notion of kingdom. And if you think about seed, through the seed of Abraham is coming this uh, messianic king, right? Um, That we're looking forward to. And he's coming through the seed of Abraham to establish his new creational redemptive kingdom. You guys tracking with me? Um, And that kingdom will be a blessing to all nations. And so, what I'm driving at is that if you are going to sum up the Bible story uh, to some degree, it's about the king and his kingdom. And when you read the Psalter, we're really singing about the king and his kingdom. That's what we're singing about. Um, We're singing about the king and his kingdom in some Psalms with regard to the original creation. And in some psalms, we're singing about the king and his kingdom with regard to the redemptive new creation. and so we're just, But we're singing, ultimately, about the king and his kingdom. Um, and so I propose an overall theme that the blessed man reposes in our sovereign God and his law. In other words, I'm looking there, for example, at Psalm 1. The blessed man understands that our sovereign... Notice that language, sovereign God. What is la- sovereign... Um, what does that, based on what I've just been saying, what does Sovereign point you to? The notion of a king, a king right? Um, there was a man who came to the United States. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a man who's a friend of his who came to, teach, came, came to the United States to teach, and he said he went into a, an antique store in the U.S., which he just thought would be a fun thing to do because the fact that Americans think they have antiques seems humorous to him. Um, And so from coming from the UK, so he went into an antique store and when he was walking around, he found a sign that said, we, we have no sovereign here. And the man said, that's precisely your problem, right? Um, As Americans. And he was coming after this notion of having no sovereign or no king. So when I say that the blessed man reposes in our sovereign God, our king and his law, um, which will be fully and finally, maybe truly administered through the Messiah, through the coming Christ. So if you want to be the blessed man, look at Psalm one. Again, I've said the Psalm one and two are the doorway to the Psalter. So look at Psalm one. "Blessed is the man." Like I said we're going to look at a lot of psalms, so I want you to be following in the text this morning. I want you to see it there. Uh, blessed is the man. Who, and this is a singular Hebrew word for man, by the way, okay? Um, it's not really appropriate to translate it, blessed is the person. Some um, newer translations are trying to be gender inclusive and they want to say, blessed is the person. Um, it needs to be, it's, it's a singular masculine for a purpose. Blessed is the man, um, why is that? Because this blessed man we're going to learn at some point is actually the Messiah, the only one who really does this on our behalf as our head and representative. So once you scrub the word man from the translation and turn it into a person um, translation, you understand the problem that with messianic implications, right? You, you scrub it of it's messianic implications. They've tried to do that, by the way, gender inclusively in several of the Psalms. Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? And so they changed it to something like, what are, what, are, "What are people that you're mindful of them?" I think. Ah, but what is man that you're mindful of him is picked up in Hebrews two, speaking about the Christ. Um, so we you know once we get gender inclusive, uh, we start lo- we stop losing a lot of inter- start losing a lot of intertextuality that's intentional. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So here are three things the blessed man doesn't do. And it's just emphatically telling you, the blessed man does not listen to the world, does not listen to the opponents of God. He does not listen to their schemes, their ideologies, their way of coming about uh, things. Rather, the blessed man, but his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, Yahweh, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's the only, that's the God who created, that's the only God whom we worship, that's the only God to whom we subscribe our allegiance. That is the only God to whom we listen and we delight in his law. Because a king has a law. You guys understand how that would work? And if you're subjects of his kingdom, you want to delight your king uh, and you delight in his law. So it says, and on his law, he meditates... Day and night. He meditates all the time. In other words, the blessed man just thinks, I have a king, I'm a subject in his kingdom, I want to hear his word, and I want to listen to it. Right? That's the blessed man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You guys notice this Edenic scene? The blessed man lives in Eden. Right? He here he is. But he's like the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does he prospers. Um, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So he's setting up the beginning of, the, of this songbook, if you will. If you think about the songbook in light of the story of the Bible, the songbook for Christians, for um, Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians, um, and you heard me say that, that's right, Old Testament Christians. They were saved through faith in the Messiah or the Christ. The songbook for Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians starts with The blessed man is the one who reposes in the Lord and his word. Who trusts in the king. Who understands that his kingdom rule um, is the word for his life. That's the blessed man. That's the man who, if you will, lives in Eden. As opposed to Adam, who actually living in Eden, did what? He, He sinned. He walked in the counsel of the wicked. Namely, the serpent. Blessed man doesn't do that, right? So what I'm saying is a proposal for the overall theme of the Psalms is that the blessed man reposes in our king and his word, or his law. That's where our rest is, which our king and his law, which will be fully, finally, truly administered through the Christ, through the Messiah. Because here's the problem. How many of us have... Walked in the council of the wicked, sat in the seat of scoffers, stood in the way um, of sinners. Anybody in here qualify for that? Okay, <laughs> every day, right? I mean, we're we're all we're all like Paul in Romans seven, wretched man that I am, who will deliver deliver me from this body of death. Um, J.C. Ryle, Russell pointed to J.C. Ryle's exposition. Uh, or discussion of Romans 7 in in his book on holiness um, in a sermon a couple weeks ago and I think J.C. Ryle makes this brilliant point that those who read Romans 7 and read about Paul struggling with his flesh I delight in your law and my inner man but then I find in my members another principle at war Right, waging war against me, and he's got this whole thing. And a lot of people say, well, that's got to be Paul before he was even converted, because that doesn't happen to anybody who's a Christian. Or, or that's got to be Paul as an immature Christian. And J.C. Ryle says, um, the man who does not recognize the mature Christian in Romans 7 has never been a mature Christian. In other words, the more you mature, the more you feel the battle rage, not the less. Right? Right? the more you see it and can call it what it is. There's a war happening in me, right? Um, And I think that's right. We're all at war. We're not this blessed man in and of ourselves who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. We're not in and of ourselves. So who's going to be for us? Who's going to be for us? Well, the king and his kingdom, right? So let's look at verse... Or chapter two. Why do the nations rage? All of them rage, and the peoples plot in vain. Uh, one of the things you need to understand when I come to the book of Revelation on Sunday evening, or Sunday at four when I start the book of Revelation, is as we go through the book of Revelation, we're ask, we're constantly asking, who who is this nation uh, represented by the beast? You guys understand the beast is a representation for um, the, the political. Uh, force or machinery that crushes it's that crushes christians persecutes and causes them suffering who is that nation well in the context of the first century it's rome but who is that nation now who was that nation a thousand years ago who will be that nation in the future and the answer is always it's every nation on earth every human kingdom because every human kingdom rages and plots in vain They all do. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. Right? That's the Hebrew word there. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the human fallen kingdoms or nations are constantly in opposition to God and his people, namely God and his blessed man, the Messiah, at whom we're his people in him. Right? How do I know that? Let's go on. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is God. The Lord holds them in derision. So you might say um, this is a kind of eschatological sense of humor, not scatological sense of humor where God's laughing at Bathroom stuff, but eschatological. God's essentially He knows how this plays out. He sees them raging against Him, and He's sort of mocking them, right? Or He's not sort of mocking them. We're actually to sing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God is mocking the nations. He's laughing at them, like you're fools. You're fools, and your arrogance trying to stand against Me, right? So you're seeing. David singing, if you will, about a bigger picture than David is personally able to experience in his life. You guys follow me on that? He's experiencing a lot of trouble, isn't he? And yet he's saying, you know what? What I know, God is in the heavens laughing at all this. Like he's mocking your foolishness, right? In opposing his people, opposing his anointed, which by the way, in the immediate context is David, the Davidic king who is the type of the Christ to come. But in the fullest sense, in the truest sense, is the Christ himself, right? You stop and think about the application of singing that song. You watch your government doing things to oppose Christianity. We're going to shut down the churches you can't meet anymore. And we think, oh my gosh, What is that? That's the government being the beast. That's the government plotting in vain against God and his anointed. And what does God think? Is he rattled? No, he's in the heavens laughing at them. Fools. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, I have the true king. Your nations, you have silly leaders at the end of the day who oppose me. I laugh at them because they're really um, not, they're nothing. My king is on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. Now here I said, ultimately, is David by the Holy Spirit uh, recording for you what the Son is telling us. The eternal Son of God who will become the messianic king. Um, when he becomes incarnate, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Now listen. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun." lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now notice this as a bracket with verse 1 of Psalm 1, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you guys hear the, the doorway to the Psalter. The blessed man is the man who rests in the king and his law. But you and all human nations have failed to do it. And I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He'll come and he'll, he'll you, if you will, reckon with those wicked sinners. And who will be the blessed man? The one who reposes in him. And that's essentially the, um, you guys have heard me talk about inclusios before. That's the inclusio around Psalm 1 and 2. That brackets, blessed is the man, right? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right? And that's the doorway to the Psalter. There is this coming king. We, as his people, have often lived in opposition to him. We were born in rebellion against him by nature children of wrath. We live in opposition to him. Our human kingdoms, even the best of our human kingdoms, are plotting in vain against the Lord and his Messiah. There's our, even the best of them, even America in her golden age, whenever that was, was still one of these kingdoms in Psalm 2. Because it's never been the nation, nor has any nation ever been the nation, who is always trusting in the king and his law and saying, what does Christ want from us? And they, that nation will never come until Christ returns. Right? And he brings in the kingdom fully, consummately himself. And that's what we're waiting for. So David is singing, saying, We know no man really fits this description, but we're supposed to. And so what's God going to do? He's going to bring that man in the person of his son, our king, and we're going to trust him. And that's where the blessing will be. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're looking forward. So we're singing in the whole of the Psalter about the king and his kingdom. About the king and his kingdom. You guys understand that, right? God's kingdom is not wherever a red state is. And God's kingdom is not wherever a blue state is or something like that. We tend to think, well, that's where God's... God's kingdom um, in this present age is wherever the church is. That's all we've got, right, as far as our vision of God's kingdom. It's the people who understand we're, met, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, and we follow our king. So that's the doorway to the Psalter. Um, this structures it. There's also a theme that structures the book. I told you guys this before, or all five books of the Psalms, which moves from lament. The, 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 the Psalm is heavy in lamentation and suffering, and it moves to praise or glory, right? It moves us. The whole Psalter moves us from lament to praise or glory. Um, it, if you will, follows... Uh, the life of our Messiah, from suffering to glory. It follows the life of the Christian from suffering to glory. And so it's heavy in lamentation, and then it ends um, with the grand benediction, which runs from Psalm 146 to 150. It's just, you guys remember those psalms at the end of your psalter that are all like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and they're just singing and they're banging all kinds of instruments together. You guys remember that? It's like this grand benediction at the end of the psalter um, of all five books that bring you to the end. So you've gone from suffering to glory or from lamentation to praise. That's what's happened. Um, All right, so let's walk through those books then. Uh, The first five books are arranged. Uh, if you will, uh, this way. I've, I've ripped off these labels from Robert Godfrey. There are several different guys who wrote um, books on the Psalms. I found his labels to be the most helpful in, in tying the Psalter to the whole story of Scripture. Uh, so I borrowed his labels. That's why I give him credit. I've told you guys this before. It's on the disclaimer at the front end of the slides. Every book I use, I pop into the front end of the slides and say, anything that you find in here that's worth listening to was ripped off from somebody smarter than me. Right? That's the general disclaimer. So if someday someone takes all this audio and, and my hundreds and hundreds, by the time I'm done, there'll be about six or 700 pages of sl- slides, and whatever it is, and takes all that and r- writes a book and then somebody says, Chad Vegas plagiarized like crazy. Just know that they forgot to put in my constant comments that I'm ripping off everything from better scholars than me. Okay, um, the, book one, the king's confidence in God's care. The king's confidence in God's care. We'll look at that in Psalm 1 through 41. Book two, the king's commitment to God's kingdom. We'll look at that in Psalm 42 through 72. Uh, book three, the king's crisis over God's promises, Psalm 73 to 89. Book four, the king's comfort in God's faithfulness, Psalm 90 through 106. And book five, the king's celebration of God's salvation from Psalm 107 to 150. So we're going to look at those books. Note at the top of Psalm 1 in your Bibles, does it say book one? Right? It doesn't? Sorry. Psalm 1, right above it, it should say book 1. And then we go from from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. So go to Psalm 41. We'll look there. At the very end of Psalm 41, just before Psalm 42, um, it should say book 2. You guys have that in your Bible? Okay. So these are the books of the Psalms. This first book, yes, sir. Yeah, it's a general division of the Psalms. But I, I'd have to look that up, Keaton, whether it's considered inspired or not. It's it, it's just been there for so long, but I would have to look it up. It's not it's not like your subtitles in the in the in the black bold print. O oh Lord, be gracious to me. I'm not. I'm also not sure. It's like like you look at the top of Psalm 41 to the. To the choir master, Psalm of David, that superscript there—that is part of the original um, so, the language of the Psalter—are the books? I—I I, I know they're historically divided. Do we consider that historical division inspired or just um, normative? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Um, Psalm 41. Let's let's look there. It's the last Psalm of this book, the king's confidence in God's care. Remember, that's what I said. This section is referencing the king's confidence in God's care. So let's notice the first verse of Psalm 1. After to the choir master, a psalm of David, or Psalm 41, sorry. Psalm 41, a psalm of David. Psalm 1, also a psalm of David. Notice what it says. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, I want to stop and think about this for a minute. Not the entire phrase, but just, just the first phrase. Blessed is the one. You guys remember that language? How does Psalm 1 start? Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one. Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's tying Psalm 1 to Psalm 41 together. Right? You have this sort of bracket of where blessing exists. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Um, or another way to say that is the weak. Right? Right? in the day of trouble the Lord delivers him the Lord protects him and keeps him alive he is called blessed in the land you do not give him up to the will of his enemies the Lord sustains him on his sickbed in his illness you restore him to full health you guys hear him um, singing about the Lord's care you guys hear that That's why I said the king's confidence in God's care. The Lord is caring for this one. As for me, I have said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, or heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. For I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? (laughs) Um, You understand you're going to die eventually. And Ecclesiastes says your name will perish. It's one of the reasons I don't love talking about leaving a legacy. You've never heard me, you'll never hear me preach a sermon on leaving a legacy. Because Ecclesiastes says that's impossible. You won't leave one. Your name will perish. Your grandkids will forget you at some point. It's kind of like this depressing news. Like it's all vanity. You don't pursue leaving a legacy. You pursue being faithful. And you let God do with it what he will. If there's some sort of legacy as a result of your faithfulness, praise the Lord. But to chase legacies is vanity. You guys understand the point I'm making. I'm not saying no one ever, quote unquote, leaves behind some legacy, whatever you want to call that. Uh, I am saying the pursuit of a legacy is vanity. Um, at, Carl Truman wrote an article I really encourage you to read. He wrote it years ago. Um, it's called The Unmessianic Sense of Non-Destiny or something like that. Is that right, Cutter? Have you guys read that? If you haven't read that, can you look it up for me, Cutter? Like the unmessianic sense of non-destiny or something like that. I would encourage you to read it. Um, It's super good. And Truman just says, essentially, it's a long article saying, get over yourself, right? Like you're, you're (laughs) it's very helpful. But his point is, he's trying to help you not chase after the wind, as we're going to see in Ecclesiastes, right? Be faithful. Don't think that your life has to be a big deal. Um, and that's what he really comes after is midlife crisis. So if you're anywhere near midlife crisis, if you find yourself buying fancy sports cars or trying to conquer the world, read the article because he's really coming after the notion, that that whole sense. He talks about buying his own red sports car. Um, and anyway, it's, it's a fun article and it's very helpful. My point being, you're going to die you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. And what David says is, uh, the weak are essentially singing that. Uh, I mean, the, the, the enemies are essentially singing that over the week. When will they die and their name be forgotten? Because they know it's coming. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. I, I want you to stop and consider this for a minute. Here he is singing, I'm confident in your care when my enemies are opposed to me. Because remember, David at some point is on the run and everybody's opposed to him, even his own son. Right? And he's singing, I trust you, be gracious to me. And notice this phrase he uses. By this I knew that you, Lord, delight in me. You delight in me. Now, I want to contrast this with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But that man's delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And now we're picking up this language of this blessed man again. This blessed man is one in whom the Lord delights. In other words, I have a confidence in my king. He delights in me and his care for me. By this I know you will delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Even if his enemy shouts in triumph over him in his lifetime, what does David know? So I want you to catch hold of this. Have Christians watch their enemies shout in triumph over them in their lifetimes? Has that happened? Yeah. We see it in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 recounts it for us. Some were sawn in two. Some were imprisoned, right, etc. We see it in the life of John the Baptist, whose enemy beheads him and shouts, if you will, in triumph over him. Um, Herod. We, we see it in the life of Christians who are burned at the stake and fed to lions, etc., etc. The enemy in this life shouts in triumph over them. David is saying, I know my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. How can he know that? What psalm do you think he's thinking about? Huh? Psalm two. The peoples are plotting in vain against the Lord and against His anointed. I know who's going to triumph. But you have held me, upheld me, because of my integrity, and set me in your presence forever. In other words, um, David is covenant to God's faithfulness. I mean, sorry. That was totally opposite of what I wanted to said. David is faithful to God's covenant. He's believing and trusting and obeying him. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. See, I'm confident in the king's care of me. I trust him. He delights in me. He won't let my enemies triumph over me. Because he set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And I take refuge in him. Right? That's what he's driving at. Book one. Book two. The king's commitment to God's kingdom. Now it starts in um, Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. um, The sons of Korah, do they write these, this psalm or some of these psalms or are they those who sing them um, written by another? We don't really know. The problem is when it says a mask or a psalm of this person, the of there could mean um, sung by them um, sung about them or written by them and we're not entirely certain uh, most seem to lean to the fact that the sons of Korah actually wrote these psalms and sung them Right. In other words, the sons of Korah being um, some kind of group who wrote and sang these psalms, and you guys know this one starts off. It's I said the king's commitment to God's kingdom as a deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul pants for you, for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Right, or see the face of God? um, you notice that he seems, he's, a, he's still being, a, this, this the psalmist here is being opposed by his enemies. And they seem to be triumphant. He's saying, I'm going to hope in the Lord. And what I'm going to say is, these, this group of psalms is really going to largely sing about the king's commitment to his own kingdom. So even, he's, he trusts in the king's commitment to his own kingdom. He's singing about the king's commitment to his own kingdom. Or the, the people of God are singing about the king's commitment to his own their, To his own kingdom. They're doing that saying, even though it looks like we're being opposed and we're on the losing side, we know God is going to prevail. And so we trust him in his commitment to his kingdom. Look at how that ends, Psalm 72. Go there. Psalm 72, you'll see it uh, clearly in the ending of this. Now, notice Psalm 72 of Solomon. The question is, is this a Psalm? Written by Solomon or about Solomon? Who's Solomon? David's son. David's son. Why is that the question? Look at verse 20 of Psalm 72. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's the end of that book. Keaton, my, I think to answer your earlier question... We've demarcated these books by, by these kinds of demarcations. Okay, this book is now ended. You saw a similar thing at the end of so then we just call it book one, two, and three. I think that's the answer, but I'll have to look it up. So, of Solomon, did Solomon write this psalm, or is it just about him? I'm not entirely certain. Um, here's what we know the covenant has been passed to Solomon, right? So, the Davidic covenant's been passed to his son, Solomon. And, and this is either being sung by him or about him. And Look what it says. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. These just aren't random statements about God cares for the poor. He does. But this isn't just like all the poor of the world. He's talking about his own people who are being oppressed. They're in poverty not because of drug addiction, right? They're in poverty because they're being conquered by enemies. They're being cut off, they're suffering, they're being persecuted. That's why they're needy. They're God's people being conquered. This isn't just general poverty he's getting after. This is the poverty you see among God's people because foreign nations oppose them. Or their own nation does. Um, That's why he says and crush the oppressor. These people are in poverty because they're being oppressed. Right? Um, May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like Rain that falls on the mown, mown grass like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. That sounds like the blessing in Psalm 1, doesn't it? It's just rain coming and fruitfulness as a result. This sort of well-watered fruitfulness that you see in Psalm 1. May he have dominion from sea to sea and, may the river to the, may, and from the river to the ends of the earth... Um, by the way, the river is the Euphrates. From the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Um, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Hey, where do you hear that language from? Genesis. Genesis. Okay, I, you guys, we can't miss the intertextual connections that are necessary to follow the story. Genesis 3.14 if you guys remember way back when I taught that, we <laughs> were the book of Genesis, whatever it was, three or four years ago. Um, and I was in Genesis 3 and I said, oh, the, on your belly you shall go all the days of your life and you shall eat the dust of the earth. I, I might remind you, this is not when serpents lost their legs. That's not the point of the Hebrew language there. It's not that serpents were legged before that and then suddenly lost their... You guys hear people mocking that, right? You Christians believe serpents had legs and then they lost them, right? No. Uh, The serpent there is Satan and the reason he's going on his belly and eating the dust is because he's a conquered foe. That's the point. Whenever you're a conquered foe, you're put under the heel of the conquering king, which means you're where? Laying face down in the dirt. And so what are you now eating? The dust, right? And what he's saying is, to quote Queen... Another one bites the dust, right? Here's here's what's happening. He's eating the dust. His enemies conquered. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls... The poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. See how the messianic king... Now, this is singing about Solomon and, if you will, the messianic king, whom Solomon's a type of. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Um, may, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in their cities like the grass of the field. You guys hear the prosperity of the blessed here? It's, it's this kind of Edenic all through, this kind of Edenic language. Contrasting the fate of the enemy of the anointed as licking the dust, being this conquered foe, and the people of the anointed um, living in the prosperous land. And the kings, the foreign kings, bringing tribute or gold to him. By the way, do you see that in, in Revelation? End of Revelation 21, what does it say? That the kings of the nations were bringing tribute to him. They were bringing in their gold to the Messiah. Now notice... He goes on. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So that's the end of the second book. The king's commitment to God's kingdom. He will bring it about. He will bring it about. And you will have those who trust in the king prospering as in Eden and those who oppose the king conquered like Satan. Right? Licking the dust. You follow the stories just being sung. All that's happening from creation to new creation, the Psalms are singing the story. They're singing what, who God is and what he's done from creation to new creation. That's what they're doing. Huh. They're giving you a heavenly perspective, an eschatological perspective. What, what you, might, you might say, um, you need to be given eyes to see. That's, that's one of the huge things I'm going to focus on in Revelation is John is seeing something and he's essentially saying to a persecuted suffering church under the Roman empire, the most powerful empire the world had known to that point may arguably maybe ever knew. um, He, he's saying to them, don't look down here for what's really happening. Look, look up here for what's really happening. And that's essentially what the Psalter's doing as a singing. Don't look down at your circumstances here if you want to know what's really happening, you need to look at the king and his, his promises and his kingdom. Keaton, you are going to ask a question? Yeah, I exactly. actually you kind of led me into some of the questions about some sort of personal application that you've encouraged you to read these and write these. Oh, yeah. And yep. Um, I, I, as to personal application, I would not argue that it's not your reality, um, it, in in the sense we don't have a king in the United States, but it seems more and more American presidents think of themselves that way. Um, <laughs> so, if you oh, and governors, um, we we've we've had we have our issues, we do. There, there are ways. I think much of the reason Christians don't face very much persecution is because there's a lot in the world that we just don't avoid. We capitulate to it. And that's part of what's happening in the churches in Revelation. They're capitulating and to avoid any kind of suffering. Economic suffering. We'll capitulate to the sinful marketplace behaviors so we can avoid economic suffering. We'll just capitulate to them. We'll capitulate to the government demands that are unrighteous because... It saves us suffering. Why? You know, like it, that happens a lot. Now, we've been particularly blessed here not to face the kind of opposition, maybe, uh, like that our brothers and sisters are facing in China. But there are some Christians all around the world facing lesser or greater intensities of, of these kinds of realities or forms of these sorts of realities. So I don't want to say it's not. It's not that it's never applied to your exact circumstances now. Like right now, you have a great job with what seems to be an ethical company allowing you to prosper and walk in godliness and come to a Bible study and go to our modulars next week or whatever, right? Like you have, like, nobody seems to be opposing you. All is well. Yeah, you're not sick right now. You're not poor right now. You're not facing that sort of opposition presently. That's true. Um, You are facing that opposition, though, spiritually as well. So I don't want to just, I don't want to say it's all spiritual. Satan, principalities, and powers are arrayed against you. They just are. They're aligned um, against you always trying to trip you up into sin and apostasy. And it's subtle. It doesn't have to be grand gestures. It's not like Satan has to pull, you know, uh, Potiphar's wife naked out in front of you to tempt you into sin. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It just can be subtle, small things that cause you to slowly drift. Get your eyes off the word, get yourself out of the church and uh, from uh, from being around God's people all the time. Give you justifications to slowly, to slowly pull away, right? It can be that way. It can be grand gestures too. Um, be opposition from people. Um, Even though you're righteous, they're destroying your reputation. Has anybody had anybody destroy your reputation even though you did nothing wrong? Happens. Happens. Um, So these sorts of things are occurring in our lives. Um, It's the plight of God's people. And he's basically saying, um, I'm not going to indulge myself in pity right we tend to we, we're an indulgent culture you guys understand what I mean by that we're indulgent we indulge everything and now uh, one of our current things is to indulge self pity It's just to indulge it I was wronged. I just need to indulge that for life and just self pity I was you know I had a horrible thing happen like you know a family member died horrible you should grieve I'm not saying don't grieve but don't become indulgent in grieving where basically you can't ever get past yourself. Right? Um, you have to get your eyes off of this earth and onto Christ and his kingdom. And so there's, there's lots of ways um, that we run into this. And the sol- psalmist is saying, look, I'm confident in God's care and his, the king's care. I'm confident that he's committed to his kingdom and and I can sing in the face of a lot of suffering, persecution, injustice, unrighteousness. You guys, you guys follow that? This, this is, I, I think it's important for us because September 14th is, among, is upon us. And some of you and I might be disappointed by the outcome. It's entirely possible, living in the state of California, that a really conservative guy isn't going to get elected. I know that might be a shock, but it's entirely possible that that's going to happen. You might be disappointed. The question is, are you still going to be singing that I'm confident in the king's care and I'm confident he's committed to his kingdom? Or is it going to be like, woe is me, all is lost. You, you understand what's happening here? Um, I better move to Idaho. Because there won't be anything wrong there, ever. You know what happens when Californians flee to places like Idaho? They become places like California. You understand how that works? You can't run away from the fall. You can't move away from it. I'm not saying you never should move. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, if your motive to move is to flee the fall, that's pretty futile pretty futile. It's going to follow you everywhere you go. It's in your house already. Right? It's just right there. Um, Now, there are good reasons to move, so don't misunderstand me. Um, Christians have moved because of persecution before. We can see that in Acts 7 and 8. We can see that in the founding of at least the northern states or the northern colonies of the United States. But the southern colonies largely were mostly an economic issue, and the northern colonies were mostly a religious persecution, fleeing religious persecution um, issue, largely. Not, none, of that exclu- none of that fully comprehends all of what happened, but you understand my point. Christians have moved because of persecution before. I'm not saying if persecution comes, um, don't move because, because it's going to follow you to the next place. That's fine, but it's okay to seek relief for a while. Right. Okay, so I'm just trying to qualify that. Book three, the king's crisis over God's promises. The king's crisis over God's promises. Look at Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles, in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You you hear what he's singing? He's having Asaph's having a bit of an existential crisis. What's the existential crisis? God is good to Israel. I believe that. The problem is, my feet are almost slipping. I seem to be stumbling, and what's he stumbling over? The wicked prosper. The wicked prosper. Now, if God's promises are true, Psalm 1, do the wicked prosper? No. The wicked will not prosper. But are like chaff, of the wind drives away. So listen to Asaph's... You guys, this is why you had to keep coming back to Psalm 1 and 2. Listen to Asaph's problem. I, I know you're good. To those who are pure in heart, Right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, right? Who bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. That's the man who's pure in heart, the blessed man who walks in the Lord. He prospers all the time. But the wicked are not so, they are like the chaff that the wind drives away they don't prosper now here's asaph singing i believe you're my king and i believe you care for your people and you're committed to your kingdom what i almost stumbled over is the fact that the wicked prosper and i'm not prospering You you guys understand that this is why just taking psalms out of context you're going to misunderstand what's being stated if you take Psalm 1 and you don't read the rest of the Psalter, you're going to be like, well, it's, you know what? If you're, just, if you're just a godly man, everything's going to go well with you all the time. And if you're a wicked man, everything's going to go poorly for you all the time. Right? And Asaph's saying, I'm having a bit of crisis over your promises because the exact opposite of what you say in Psalm 1 is what I see happening. So he goes on. Um, look, at, look at his description of them. Verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're fools. They scoff, remember, the scoffers, and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, against the heavens. Now, again, what do they do? Psalm 2, you guys remember? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Right? They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch to the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Um, Now notice it says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Um, You guys hear the problem he has? Why are they always at ease, always increasing in riches? Why are they fat and happy and I'm miserable and suffering, right? Now look what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my what? My refuge, that I may tell them of all your works. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's seeing the ultimate picture, isn't he? Eschatologically. He's minded toward heaven. It doesn't look good, but then I went into your sanctuary where you dwell, where I hear your word, and I discerned their end. Right, the wicked looked prosperous, doesn't seem to fit Psalm 1. The blessed looked to be suffering, doesn't seem to fit Psalm 1. And then I went into your sanctuary and I heard the singing of Psalm 2. And I discerned their end. Look at Psalm 77. Just to give you another example. To the choir master, according to Jedithun, a psalm of Asaph. Notice again his crisis and God's promises. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent diligent search. Listen to his questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Or his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So here's a man who's suffering, who can't even sleep. He's suffering, can't sleep. God's hold, it's like he's holding his eyelids open, and he just refuses to be comforted. And he's like, has God forgotten to be gracious to me? Are your promises at an end for me? Do, do you really care about me? Right. That's what he's singing. Now what he'll go on to answer that question is fascinating. He goes on to, to recount the story of the exodus. You know how I know you're for me? Because of the exodus. You redeemed your people. Now I want you to understand this. As Christians, the exodus, um, we understand, is a type of the greater exodus to come. What, what do I mean by that? From the perspective of Israel, they have an exodus experience. They come out of slavery in Egypt, death, coming up out of it. Exodus is resurrection, and they ascend to the mountain, right? And he's recounting that story. And the greater exodus, as told in Luke and Acts, by the way, Luke and Acts essentially follows the pattern of the exodus. The greater exodus in Luke and Acts is that Christ went into the grave, if you will, and emerged from it and led us in an exodus out of the grave a resurrection. How do I know that? Jesus actually tells them that Moses and Elijah came to me and told me about the exodus that was to happen to me in Jerusalem. That's the Greek language, exodon. It's happening in Jerusalem about his resurrection. He's going to exit the grave, right? Resurrect. And, and, and we're looking forward to that. In other words, it's a story of, of death and resurrection that goes through Scripture. Um, and so he's driving this home if you want to hear more about that in detail Michael Morales is coming a week from Monday to teach at RTI but it's Monday night and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Friday morning Um, most of you probably doesn't accommodate your schedules like 8 to noon but if you do have if you do want to take some vacation time and come here, Michael Morales is probably the best biblical theologian alive um, that's that's going to be alive for several more decades. The second one would probably be Beal, but he's in his 70s. So the clock's ticking, right? Um, but, but Morales is coming. He's excellent. He'll be here that week, a week from Monday. Um, and he wrote a book, Exodus Old and New, which I would encourage you to read um, if you haven't. Anyway, um, that's what he sings about. Okay, go to Psalm um, 89. We won't read this whole psalm. It's too long. But I'm going to try to finish this book, um, these books briefly. In the King's Christ over God's promises, he's singing about the steadfast love of the Lord. But go to the very end of Psalm 89. um, Specifically, look down. um, As he's singing in verses 38-39, he's singing about his crisis over his promises. Um, But then when you come to verse uh, 48... Um, he says, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, from the grave? Right? Who can deliver us? Um, notice in verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? You see the same crisis happening? Okay? Who can deliver me from death? And then verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Like, how come you're not fulfilling your promises? That's what he's asking, the crisis over his promises. Now look, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And the end of book three. So the king's confidence in God's care in book one the king's commitment to God's kingdom in book two, the king's crisis over God's promises in book three, and the king's comfort in God's faithfulness in book four. So look at Psalm 90. Um, He's going to say this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is actually a psalm written by Moses, right? That's why I said the psalms go over a thousand years in in authorship. um, From Moses to Babylon... Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning in the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening it fades and withers for we are brought to an end by your by your anger by your wrath we are dismayed you have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh the years of our life are 70 or by even by reason of strength, 80. Ron apparently has reason of strength because he's past 70, right? Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That's a nice way to sum up your life, right? You might live 70, if if you're really strong, 80, but the span of your years are toil and trouble. (laughs) That's the summation, right? Did you put that on your tombstone? Toil and trouble, right? All right, and then we fly away. and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So he's going to turn to his being comforted in the Lord. It's life sucks. That's what he's basically saying to sum it up. Um, I can say it here in a group of men, I wouldn't use it in a pulpit with children, et cetera, but life sucks and, and, and we trust you. You're faithful. Right? He's going to go on. Look at Psalm 106 to see the conclusion of this. Going to wrap up here in a few minutes. Psalm 106. This 48 verses, I'm not going to um, read the whole thing. But look at how it starts Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's covenant faithfulness, steadfast love. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. In other words, I want to see the prosperity of your people. I want to see it. Now notice he says, Notice, faithful, faithless people and faithful God. Look at this, verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and he redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. See, we were faithless, we were sinners and you were faithful and you redeemed us. Look look over at uh, verse 43 of Psalm 106. Many times, he, that being God, delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. You hear that? God kept redeeming them, and what do they keep doing? Rebelling. Like, you think of the book of Judges is the most tight picture of this, right? They rebel, they're oppressed, God sends a redeemer, he saves them. What do they do? They rebel again. They're oppressed, God sends a redeemer, he saves them, right? You just see that cycled. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. Verse forty-four. They were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. See, they were faithless, and he was faithful. So he's getting at save us, O Lord our God. Verse forty-seven, and gather us from among the nations. That we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Say, essentially, I take comfort in your faithfulness. The king's comfort in God's faithfulness. That really stretches from Psalm um, 73 through Psalm 89. I'm, excuse me, sorry, Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. That stresses, I take comfort in your faithfulness. Psalm 90 through 106. That's that's just what these psalms are about. Now, Psalm 107 to Psalm 150 is the king's celebration of God's salvation. He just starts singing it. Look at 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Um, Notice this. He's gathering his people from all the nations. They're singing his praise. The king is celebrating God's salvation. It's going to go all the way through the Psalter, uh, through the last part, or last book of the Psalter. Do you guys know what the central book, the heart of um, Psalm 107 through Psalm 150 is? Psalm 119. Okay? Psalm 119. Celebrating really God, the king's celebrating God's salvation. Now... We spent 22 weeks on Psalm 119, so I'm going to spend zero time on it this morning. Just look at the end of the Psalter. Look at the end of the Psalter. Let's get to, if you will, um, the grand benediction. Um, Psalm 145, look there. You're going to see it start in 146, but you kind of get led up to it in 145. A song of praise. Notice it's not a song of lament or something. a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And then he just goes on to how God has done all these mighty works, been faithful and good, Um, look toward the end Uh, look look down at uh, verse 17 the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works the Lord is near to all who call on him he fulfills the desire of those who fear him he also hears their cries and saves them the Lord preserves all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever so he's going to destroy the wicked and save his people And so I'm just going to praise him. And then you have a breakout for chapter 146. Look how it starts. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Look at verse 10 of 146. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Look at verse uh, 1 of 147. Praise the Lord, for it's good to sing. Praises to our God, for it's pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. Look at the end of Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. You guys following the theme here? Beginning of Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens and praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted, His majesty above earth and heaven. He He raised up a horn for his people of salvation, right? You're going to read about that in Luke 1. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Look at how Psalm 149 ends. Praise the Lord. Psalm 150. You guys following the trend line here? Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise and... Where's his sanctuary now, by the way? Where his people are gathered under the word and sacrament. There, the temple of God. There's his sanctuary. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding symbols. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. End of the Psalter. Right. So you notice how they've moved from where are you? This is difficult, but we trust you to four chapters of just or four psalms of just praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's the grand benediction of the Psalter. From suffering to glory, the king um, will keep his covenant promises and bring in the kingdom for his people. Um, And that's what they sing. All right. So uh, next week, we'll look at Job. We'll look at the book of Job. Um, I'm going to try to finish the whole book in next week. We shall see. Um, But that's the goal. Any uh, questions before I shut this recording off? Anybody? You thought the whole Psalter couldn't be summarized in that time. There you go. Skipped a lot of good material. But um, there's your picture, and it's tied to biblical theology. The king and his kingdom. Right? Um, Okay. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the chance that we had to be in your word. We pray that we would understand it, that we would live by it, that we would be those who take refuge in your son who delight in your law, who want to follow our King, who have our eyes firmly set on his kingdom, not on the kingdoms of man. Our hope is not here, but in your Son and his kingdom. May we keep our eyes firmly set upon him. and May we praise the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.